A supportive work environment can help everyone working in schools stay resilient. Just finding people that can reassure me that I'm doing my best and that there are people out there who understand me and can help me through these situations. You are not alone. Leaning on each other, uh, colleagues in education is, is essential. You have to. We take care of one another. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. That's cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. Oh, this should be a good one. This should be a good one. Welcome, everyone. This is episode 10 of Morning Combat. Da, 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 da. Extra credit. This is the podcast within the podcast. This is where I go over some of the bigger fights of the weekend that we never even got a chance to really talk about on regular MK with Brian Campbell. So first things first, thumbs up on the video if you are watching this on YouTube. Hit subscribe if you are watching this on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast player, we appreciate that too. Give us a nice review in whatever format you are streaming this on, whether it's Spotify, Stitcher, you get the whole thing. Okay, back from Vegas, huh? How about that? A ton of fun. We got into it on regular morning combat. I won't get into it here again, but... We are coming off of UFC 269. I mean, I could do the entire card, honestly, for today. In the interest of time, we're going to pick, as we usually do, about five fights and a couple of honorable mentions. So let's throw the card up here on the screen. The ones highlighted in yellow, that's what we'll get to here for today. Um, for folks, again, listening on the audio podcast, that means Kai Kara France versus Cody Garbrandt, Sean O'Malley taking on Howley and Paiva, Dominic Cruz, what a win he had, huh? Taking on Pedro Munoz. Andre Muniz taking on Eric Anders, and then last, certainly not least, Aaron Blanchfield's win over Miranda Maverick. <clears throat> I'll throw out a couple of honorable mentions along the way uh, when we get to the end here as well, but I want to talk about these 10, or these five, I should say, episode 10, um, here to start. Okay? All right. Let's get into it if we can. Kai Car France defeating Cody Garbrandt 321 of the first round. We talked about this a little bit on Morning Combat, although the plan was to predominantly get into it here. <sighs> this is a tough one. This is a really, really tough one. The biggest read I made, I talked about this on the post-fight show. I went back and I watched the fight a couple of times extra beyond what I experienced live on fight night to see if I had the same reaction. I'm more or less do. I'm a little bit more sympathetic to the argument that maybe um, the durability issues are costing him. Again, to go back, people were like, oh, it's his chin and it's, you know, that's really the difference here and blah, blah, blah. And to be clear, um, you know, it is a problem. I, I, I can acknowledge it much. And I did on Saturday night, but I thought it was also worth repeating. And I, and I maintain this, that part of his issues is um, for our European listeners, you may not understand this, but I've talked about this. Actually, I just did a podcast with the Schmo. I've made this comparison a few times, but it's worth repeating at least once more, which is um, we have the NFL, right? The National Football League. One of the hardest things to do, if you watch quarterbacks in college, they actually don't start what's called under center, which is right behind the center, the guy who hikes the ball to the quarterback. You'll note that they often stand what's called um, in shotgun, which means a little bit further back, five, sometimes even more yards than that. So it gives them a big a big survey of the target, but it also creates a little bit of lag time before the defenders can get to them. Why do I bring all of this up? Because by the time you get to the NFL, they don't do a lot of, they do some shotgun formations, but a lot of it is under center. And the quarterback at the highest level is expected to go to the line of scrimmage and look at how the defense has lined up. How many are they rushing? Are they loaded on one side? What are they looking for? You have to be able to read that, and then once the ball is in play, to make according decisions based on how much that follows up or what it changes or blah, blah, blah. And you can imagine that like you know, those, those reads of the line of scrimmage, they have a huge impact on ultimately what throw 
the quarterback decides to make and whether it's in double coverage or whether they're open, blah, blah, blah. But your best quarterbacks, your Aaron Rodgers is, your your uh, Tom Brady's, these are the guys who at the line of scrimmage can look around and go, okay, I know what I'm up against. Tony Romo got in trouble as a commentator because he was at the line of scrimmage as a commentator and then calling out what plays were coming next. That's an important skill to have. I bring all of it up because it just seems to me like Cody's got a bit of an issue there. Um, he has a hard time, it appears to me, making reads about what is coming at him and therefore, as a consequence, effectively either blocking, being absent, or just slipping off to the side and getting out of the way. We know he's got good athleticism, not really much of an issue. We know he can hit hard, not really much of an issue. He looked to me like he was moving pretty well at flyweight. We never really got a chance to see that tested, but that double jab entry and then the location of it it just completely fooled Cody. Now, understand, fighters get fooled all the time by what they see, uh, and then something lands, and sometimes it can be catastrophic, but a lot of times it, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. It seems like everything he gets hit by has this, like, you know, either catastrophic or nearly catastrophic response. To me, this is a couple of things. Um, I will acknowledge probably a little bit more than I should have on Saturday that I do think that the durability issues – they are quite real. I don't know how you fix them. You could go back to 135, certainly, but that by itself wouldn't erase the problem. Um, and it, we also don't know to what extent he had those problems exacerbated by being at 125. Still, um, that's a problem. And the other problem is if you just don't know what's coming at you and you have a hard time making reads and adjustments about it, you're going to get hit a lot cleaner than normal. You're going to take the full brunt of them because you literally don't see them. If you can see punches coming and then kind of roll with it and block and it kind of deflects a little bit, none of that is great per se, but that will keep you in the ball game a lot longer than just getting stole on constantly. And it just looks to me like when these guys land, Cody just doesn't see it coming. You look at the case of this fight. I said he was stationary on Saturday night. That's not quite true. It's, it's somewhat true. He didn't have both feet on the ground. He wasn't moving laterally or forward. There was none of that. That's why he got hit. But what happened was the jab from Kaikara France fooled Cody. And Cody decided, aha, he's going to throw this jab. I'm going to stuff it or make it deter him um, by leg kicking him. As you go back and watch, like you know, you, you can kick out the inside leg that they're stepping on quite heavy as a way to deter the jab or uh, a few other things and he's going for that but that first jab was just a decoy he sets another one behind it and then the right hand comes and then just completely sets him down he just he he bit on a, a fake and that by itself is no scandal um, but when you combine the fact that you know um, you know he's biting on stuff pretty early in rounds and getting hit with things the stuff that's landing is never landing like in a halfway manner. It's always like crashing into him. And there's the durability issues aforementioned. It, it, it's a huge problem. They asked us on DMs with donks, do you see Cody being able to fight at a high level? And it's really strange. Like offensively, yeah, I do think he can fight at a high level. It's just that if you've got if you've got issues making reads at the line of scrimmage, um, and you know there's durability issues, that's a it's. It's a tough problem to deal with. It's a tough problem to deal with. And I don't really know what the answer is going to be for him, candidly. Um, I don't have a good response. But it's a nice win by Kai Car France. We should note that. It's the, frankly, the win of his career. He got it rel relatively easily. Um, he looked good. Uh, people were noting, by the way, with Garbrandt, that he was doing a lot of moving and whatnot and then trying to intercept 
Cara France as he was finding his moments to get closer, which is true. But like, here's the problem. It's like, on the one hand, he was doing a lot of moving. He was staying way outside of range. It's like, dude, the first time he tried to throw a kick to counteract what he thought was the jab, he got drilled with a monster right hand. It's like, it's fine to be on the outside, you know, and I'm going to pick my spots and whatnot. But it's like, dude, the first time there was like real contact uh, in punching range. And by the way, there's another question about like Cody's determination of range here. Now, Kai Car France cheated it a little bit. And I, I'm not saying like the rules. I'm saying like the position with the double jab, because part of what the double jab allows you to do is close distance effectively. So just Cody just not, you know, just making an early read, I thought probably not best for him it's not like kicking that leg out is wrong per se to counteract the jab but early in a fight if what you're really trying to do is maintain that outside space and a guy is jabbing like that you know not that i'm like some kind of coach i i i I, I, i'm not in a position to tell them what to do other than to say what they did didn't work pretty clearly and um, if you're really worried about that much contact you got to start that round with the kinds of responses physically that keep you perhaps a little bit further away, but that would require again judgment issues about distance and and uh, timing and and um, appears to be a problem. It appears to be a problem. I certainly don't envy the uh, unfortunate situation that Cody has found himself in. But Kai Car France looked great. He has he has looked. Remember he had a stint in UFC and then was bounced. Right? If I, if I get that right? Uh, no, I guess once he started, he never looked back. But he was on the Ultimate Fighter. And uh, started out kind of up and he had some good wins, but he had the Howley and Piper when he only won via split. He had the win over Mark De La Rosa. And then the two times he kind of stepped up against Brandon Royville and Brandon Moreno didn't really go all that well for him. But this was a solid one. Two wins in a row via stoppage. He's looking pretty good. Kaikara France is only uh, 28 years old. He, he is one to certainly keep an eye on. He looks to be pretty good. Uh, okay. We go to the second fight. How about this one? This is, to me, just insanely impressive. Did he win a performance bonus? Yes, he did. Uh, Sean O'Malley defeating Howley and Piva at, at 442 of the first round. Boy, let me tell you something about Sean O'Malley. He was impressive in this fight. I want you guys to go and watch something for me. There are You don't see as much of this in MMA as you do in boxing, where, again, this is not like, oh, boxing's better, but because boxing has different rules and different incentive structures, you're going to get different capabilities as a consequence and what i mean to say is you know if you can just really focus your game on striking you can add certain dimensions that you don't see a whole lot of in mma you do see some of it of course but only with the very special guys sean o'malley's rhythm change i really want you to go and pay attention to that this was on strong display recently for example when the boxer sean porter fought um uh, bud crawford and what you'll see sean porter doing is actually kind of similar to what sean o'malley was doing here a little bit there are times when you see him either in southpaw or orthodox folks focus on his stance switching which is important because he does a lot of it but also pay attention to his rhythm change so there are times when he is you know doing a lot of this where if you're listening on audio podcast i'm head fainting like i'm looking at like i'm a about to lunge forward for a second and he'll hip faint and do other kinds of feints but he'll get low and he'll be in this and he might even rotate but he kind of stays in a crouched wide position where he's faking and fainting behind it then he'll switch it up and get kind of tall and then bounce in and out of range and that's when he's looking for you to chase him so he can pop you pull and then pop you again right he's very very good at that so understand what he's doing he's he's got great rhythm change he's low he's high he's bouncing he's stationary He's switching stances on you. 
Southpaw, Orthodox, in combination, before it, at the end of it, you name it. Um, and then, of course, he's got a wide diversity of strikes that he's playing with as well. He does good work to the body. A little bit of a headhunter in this fight, but not, not too badly. And, in fact, that's how he set up the beginning of the end. In fact, from Orthodox, he throws a right hand, right, that just catches Paiva clean. He doesn't see it coming at all, doesn't anticipate it. I think there was a quick feint before. I know Sean O'Malley, I think, was um, he set it up with a jab, and it looked like he was going to the body and said he came over the head to the top, expecting, I think, a reaction at the end of the punch from Paiva. So he just drills him with his right hand. Then to follow it up, switch to southpaw to finish him off against the fence. I don't know if that was uh, purposely. Like, if I heard him from Orthodox, I'm going to finish him off from, from southpaw. I tend to think it probably wasn't. I tend to think what he was doing there was instinctual in many ways. But it just goes to show you what kind of command of striking Sean O'Malley has. He has this ability to incorporate dimensions to his striking that even at the championship level, you just don't see a lot of. You see people changing their timing where they do the same kind of thing, either slower or faster or not at all. But it's very different to have uh, one kind of posture in a fight where you can move in a bunch of different directions. And then you completely change up the look you are giving your opponent with stance changes combined into it in a very different way that offers a series of different complicating factors, right? If I'm stationary, but I'm in your face, right? That's a different kind of weapon that you are incorporating, a series of weapons that you are incorporating. I have to assess if you're up on your feet and bouncing. Well, now, now I have to worry about the blitz. I don't really have to worry about the blitz if you're low, right? But now if you're standing like Whitaker and you're up on the balls of your feet, I got to worry about the blitz. I got to worry about your hands being around your hips if you're standing and bouncing versus when you're low and stationary, their hands are here. So again, there's there's challenges that come with either of them, but now I'm switching them up. I'm incorporating them into a wider array of dimensions. Dude, I don't see a lot of guys change up rhythm the way O'Malley does. Not at the UFC level. It's pretty rare. Now, some of you might be saying, oh, am I arguing that O'Malley, because he does things a lot of other striking focused fighters don't that this must mean he's automatically better than them that doesn't mean that i mean there are many ways you can lose and get tested in this game he talked about the fact that another rib injury i mean the guy appears to be potentially injury prone uh, sean o'malley does we'll have to see and also you know to what extent is he durable and to what extent can he deal with a wrestler like there's a bunch of questions about who he can actually beat in mixed martial arts that about like this doesn't really answer but what I can tell you is on the feet against the likes of Howley and Paiva, he was completely styling on him. I guess the round was pretty close to being over at 442, but, dude, he looked fantastic. And if you missed morning combat, I'll re repeat one of the points here quickly about what I had said about Sean O'Malley, which is, you know, back in Strike Force, what they would do for guys is they would matchmake them almost like boxers, where they would give you, you know, obviously if you were, you know, a high-level fighter in terms of the top of that division or a champion, you had tough fights you had to win, but what Strike Force would do a lot with prospects is give them fights that were winnable for a long time, more so than other promoters in the space. Or, you know, this title defense is tough, and then the next one's a little bit, you know, made to look made, made for you to look good, and that kind of a thing. Um, and it worked, dude. Like that model built up a lot of guys who ended up being not just UFC champions, but they were more popular than they otherwise would have been by virtue of that matchmaking. Sean O'Malley, by turning down ranked competitors until he gets more, and I, I don't know if he's going to – I don't know if he'll figure out a way to get the UFC to pay him, but in terms of making himself look good, dude, these are memorable performances. These are highlight reel knockouts. He validated his place on the main card with the way he fought like this and delivered like this to open the main card. He is strike-forcing himself.
I mean, it's an amazing thing to watch. I, whether it will result in the pay he wants, I don't know. But in terms of the acclaim and um, all the other rewards that come with the way this style of fighting works and everything else, he is utterly maximizing his position in time. And that should be pretty acknowledged as well. Very, very, very impressive by Sean O'Malley. Pay attention. Go back and watch. Watch how his rhythm changes. He goes from low stand, low stance, jagged, in and out, head fakes and feints, uh, and, and foot feints and step feints, and then gets up high and then uses that bouncing stuff to go and then you know do blitzes or you know other kinds of things. It's you have to fight a lot of different kinds of strikers all at once when you fight Sean O'Malley. Very very impressive. Great job by him. Uh, we move now to the preliminary card. How about Dominic Cruz? Dominic Cruz getting a win over Pedro Munoz, 29-28 across the board. Now, he got dropped in the first round, but then he came back and won the second and the third pretty cleanly in my book. Pedro Munoz was not really in those rounds, especially not the third, um, but really not even the second either. But he was in the first. What happened in the first? Let's talk about that for just a second. There is one particular stance switch that a Cruz does, and he likes to do a lot of stuff with it. He It looked to me, and I have to talk to him about it, it looked to me like he misjudged it, the distance. What I mean by that is, uh, let me see if I can let me see if I can draw something on my hand or a piece of paper or something so you guys can see here. Yeah, I'm going to draw on this. Okay, if this is Pedro Munoz right here, and then this is Cruz right here. Okay, so I'm going to say Pedro Munoz is the plus. Dominic Cruz is. Let's do this. Look at that for a second for me. Can you see that? You see that at all? A little easier to see. Okay, the X's are Pedro Munoz's feet. The the sort of V here is Dominic Cruz, right? And I go if you're listening on the audio podcast, I'll make this as explainable as I can. But I just want you to notice something. Dominic Cruz started out. If you can look at this, he started out on this side. He started out orthodox versus orthodox, and then jumped to this other side. Excuse me, right here. Jumped his other side to southpaw. So he just jumped from orthodox whoop, to southpaw. Now, you might be inclined to think that if you jump, one more time here, if you jump from orthodox to southpaw, you didn't really change your distance to the other fighter. You just kind of switched stance in front of them. That can happen depending on how you switch stance. But the way he did it created a problem because I'm going to show you the matchup that he lost. When he jumped, one more time, let's see if I can see you guys see this. One more time. There we go. Right. When he jumped to this side, pay attention to this one right here. Cruz has the, one more time. Cruz has the outside foot position here, right? So that means his left straight is right down the middle. But the problem is Munoz saw it coming. So while he has, well, he doesn't, excuse me, have the inside foot position. Cruz has the outside, excuse me, one more time. Cruz has the outside, one more time, outside foot position. But Munoz, while Cruz is to the outside, he is standing here ready to jab. The shortest possible punch, once Cruz goes from orthodox to southpaw, the closest punch is that jab from Munoz. It's right in front of him. He has the inside foot. Remember how they all talk about how southpaws versus orthodox, that lead foot position really matters. The reason why they say that is because if I can take my lead foot outside, I create a lane for my dominant hand. 
right? So it lines up my dominant punch. But what they don't tell you is if you actually keep your foot to the inside while the other person has lined up their dominant punch hand, you have the shortest punch to land with the jab. So in the middle of hopping from orthodox to southpaw, what he ends up doing is just lining himself up in transition for the shortest punch possible between the two of them, which is the Munoz jab to the face of Cruz. Well, what Munoz did was, A, make a great read and do it so quick, he was able to catch it as Cruz is coming into that southpaw position. Normally, what he likes to do is hop from southpaw to orthodox, not just a switch, but like a, a literal hop over. And because from there, he can then level change. He can then weave underneath a punch and then throw one on top. It's actually a pretty handy stance switch for him. He must have misjudged the distance because he did set up the lead outside left to go straight down the middle, but he wasn't quick enough and then centered himself for a jab to the face uh, from Munoz before he could do anything. And that's what sat him down. That's what caused all those problems for him in the first. So it was a great, great job by Munoz to catch him like that. Bit of a misjudgment and a miscalculation on the part of Cruz. But that aside, A, he ended the first round, I would say, quite strong, strong Lee. And then the second, third round, they were all his. I'll boil it down to this. Go back and watch in the second and third round. You'll see Cruz switch stances in the way I'm talking about where he jumps from orthodox to southpaw, but he is much further back this time. So it actually actually made it actually made that stance switch not all that valuable because he didn't want to repeat the mistake. So he like overcompensated on the distance um, versus this time where he just kind of, he may have like, when you jump from orthodox to southpaw, what ends up happening is you think what you're doing is on the right line, but if the other person takes a half step or you misjudge and you actually went forward a little bit, now your distance is all off and you can get cracked, which is what happened. So that's the story there. But the real story of the fight is in the second and third round. It's a two-part issue for me. One, Cruz made it this way, and B, Pedro Munoz didn't have an answer for it. But Pedro Munoz just gave him way too much space, like – way too much space like way 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 too much space we talked about it on friday dude to the extent cruz has move uh, uh room to move he's going to light you on fire if he has room to set up weaving stance switching blitzes um uh, stance switching through combination like from far away and then he can launch into like a thousand strikes through this long process like dude you're just you it's going to be hard to beat him that way there were some of the leg kicks i saw from munoz in the first round that kind of went away after that he was just waiting around too long and of course you can credit dominic cruz for much of that right for giving him so many looks for for being on his horse the whole time and moving and and ducking and dodging and then throwing his own strikes and by the way another great thing that dominic cruz did was he, how, go back and look at how many combinations he threw he wasn't trying to pitter patter pedro munoz he knew pedro munoz was probably going to be stationary as he got out of the way, or at least his feet would be planted. So if he could, let's say, circle around him or get him moving backwards or get him to slip, and then you stay in position so he'll slip and then come back to where he was, and then you can keep firing. So it was just great job by Dominic Cruz in creating the conditions under which he can thrive. Not some great reads from Pedro Munoz outside of that first round. First round, he did a great job. Second and third, not so much. And... um you know, the, the 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 misjudgment by Cruz cost him in the first, but it didn't cost him the fight, dude. For him to get a win over a guy as good as Pedro Munoz at this stage of his career is extremely validating. And then, you know, to do it after getting dropped, he's a tough out. Dominic Cruz is still a tough out. I thought he was kind of on his way out maybe after the Cejudo loss. 
that was very premature of me to, to even assume as much. Not true. He is he is still a very difficult, difficult fighter. But again, I'm going to go back to it. Like, dude, in MMA, the octagon gives these guys so much room to breathe. It's not like the four 90-degree angles that come with the square of the boxing ring. They have so much open space. A big key component is a lot of guys need that space to get their creativity you know, flowing. And the bad part is if they have it, they're going to be really hard to beat. But the good news, albeit the tough news, is that you have got to, got to, got to limit their movement. Dominic Cruz forced to be in a phone booth fight. I'm not saying he can't win, but that's going to be a very different fight anyway from when the, he has room to move. So uh, great job by Cruz. Some decent things from Pedro Munoz for sure, but not enough to get the W in the end. All right, let's talk about a couple more of these that I want to give some attention to. The first of them was the main event of the Fight Pass portion of the card. How about Andre Muniz defeating Eric Anders? He just seems like a beast at middleweight. Muniz is a huge middleweight. He is very much in control. Let me look. How old is this guy? I have actually not paid a whole lot of attention to him. 31. He's got a little bit going on for him in terms of age. Um, he has four losses, but they came from 2016 and before, some of them from 2012 um, and even further back. But since 2017, he is basically undefeated. He's undefeated in the UFC. He had two wins on the Contender Series. Bruno Assis, Taylor Johnson, Antonio Arroyo. Then he beat Barstow's Fabinski. Then he submitted. Well, actually, he submitted Fabinski, then submitted Jacare, and then submitted Eric Anders as well. How did he do it? This one is so nice. First of all, how did he get him down? There's a couple ways he was like creating space behind Eric Anders and then kicking his feet out as he pulled him back into the negative space. But the real one he did was, you guys have seen this a million times, where they'll get to the side of an opponent and then weave one leg over the near side and then behind the other one. A lot is being asked of people working in schools. Teachers have more and more things to do. The shortage of teachers right now, um, you know, having to fill a lot of holes and, and wear a lot of hats, it's, it's very difficult. There are steps you can take to manage stressful times, whether in the classroom or outside of work. For me personally, I can disconnect by just being outside. Laughing <laughs> works a lot. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. You see this all the time. It's a common tactic. It's designed to spin them uh, down to the ground. I think Danaher was the first one I've ever saw. Uh, no, maybe maybe Henzo, but of course it's the same family system there. It's actually a very effective takedown um, in the right hands. Like the people who know how to do it, it's, it's quite nice to get. So he gets to the back, and then eventually what you see is Anders is going to get to his base and stand. Now, not fully stand. His hands will be on the mat, and his feet will be on the mat, and he will have his rear end in the air. What Muniz does is he has the back at this point. So what he decides to do is he decides to, as as the weight comes up the back from Anders, he actually sags his own weight forward and then behind the right arm. The hand of Anders is now planted on the mat. So what he does is he actually reaches behind it and now clamps it to himself, right? He comes, actually, actually you'll watch it. He comes underneath the arm almost. And then around on that same side with his own right arm, he actually grabs the back of the leg of Eric Anders and then pulls and drives his own hips. Watch him go, go get his hips stiff, drives in that direction. Why is that important? Because one, it takes Anders off of his feet, first of all. 
holding that leg almost serves as a cradle once they get. Now, he has to eventually let it go, but it almost serves as like a cradle where the person can't quite get on their base because you're pulling out that near side leg from under them. But more importantly, he locks up the arm behind him, then goes for the leg to pull it. So by the time he decides to then twist his hips underneath to go for the arm bar, the arm is already tucked behind him. Understand something, with the arm bar, you can have it with two hands close to you. A lot of people grab it with the crook of their elbow and then, you know, try to wrench it or, you know, there's a lot or, you know, even with the, the center part of the forearm to hold it to their chest. One of the most vicious ways is to actually tuck their hand behind your armpit and then to wrench. It gives it that much more torque. What I'm trying to point out to you is he's able to A, lock up the arm behind him and B, cause Anders to be pulled off of his base so that he can then go, Muniz, into the armbar position all with one fell swoop with his leg, excuse me, with his arm, reaching out behind, clamping that arm to his side, and then getting behind the, the leg, front and then behind the leg, uh, all on the right side of Anders, all to pull him out, and he gets him on his side, and then he just twists underneath the armbar. Understand, so if, you get, if you try and, like, get to the back, Right, and then I'm going to work on my choke. You might get your choke, especially if you're Charles Oliveira fighting Dustin Poirier. But for most people, in a lot of cases, if you try to go for a choke once you get to that position, it's going to be harder. Right, like if I'm in mount and I have I'm, I'm, I'm mounted on someone and their arms are here, and granted, in MMA I could open it up with punches, but with jiu-jitsu, if their arms are already here, you know I have to now create separation from their arms away from their body. That's another task I have to do. What Muniz did is, I'm going to set up my armbar finish before I even start the armbar. I haven't even got to the position where I can apply the armbar, but what I'm going to do first is, I'm going to lock up the arm, then I'm going to take him off of his base, and then I'm going to move into armbar position. I want to go for the armbar when his arm is already fucked before I even try. That way, when he goes belly down and drives into it, dude, it's that, that shit was going to get broken or Anders was going to tap, period period that is clever very solid solid jujitsu if you wait to attack once you get to the position you might get it but your chances go way up if you can lock up certain features of it before you get to it and then you can do some real damage great great job by andre muniz um and then last but certainly not least of this uh whoops hang on we will go to a fight that caught me by surprise, and I will give her credit because it was so thorough. There's nothing else I can say. Pay attention to Aaron Blanchfield. She defeated Miranda Maverick. You guys know I've been high on Miranda Maverick. I will remain high on Miranda Maverick. I actually think she's quite talented, but she got worked over in this fight. There's just no two ways about it. Aaron Blanchfield, how old is this young lady? She is 22. 22. Um uh, out of Henzo and then Silver Fox BJJ. Silver Fox BJJ, shouts to Silver Fox. That dude has um, uh, some of the best guillotine stuff I've ever seen in the sport. Really good guillotines over from that dude. Her nickname is Cold-Blooded. I can see why, bro. She is a fucking handful. Jesus, she was born after I graduated high school. Well, I am old as fuck. Um, she does have one loss to Tracy Cortez via split decision back in 2019 in Invicta. But since coming to the UFC in two fights, she's defeated Sarah Alper and then Miranda Maverick. A bit of some finishing issues, at least at this level. She only has three, yeah, three stoppages out of nine fights, which is okay, but not great. But but where she excels is her takedowns. I mean, this is so amazing, right? Let me pull up the numbers on this if I can. 
um, just to give you a sense of things. So Aaron Blanchfield in this fight scored seven of eight takedowns. She got four in the first, three in the second, and then one in the third. But in the third, she held it for three minutes and 38 seconds control time. She had overall 12 minutes of control time in this fight. And what was kind of interesting was she obviously did a lot about striking. Now, in the first round, they didn't do a, a lot either, six to eight Mara Ma Maverick to Blanchfield in terms of significant strikes. But in the second round, Blanchfield had 24, Maverick eight. And the third round, 14, Mara Maverick just seven. Here's what was so impressive about this. It was that once she got to the floor, her control was overwhelming. Maverick simply could not do anything to create the kind of space or, um, you know, move the balance of Blanchfield in a way to, to attack it ever. And what was more impressive than even that was not that she got seven of eight takedowns. They might be, uh, this is probably not quite true, but there might be five or six different types of takedowns that she got those seven with. She might have gone back to the well on one or two of them. But, dude, she was using a variety. What I'm trying to point out is she not only had takedown. Like, if I have, like, a great double leg and my single's, like, okay and whatever, and we wrestle, my double leg could be so good that in a wrestling match I could get ten takedowns, and you'd be like, wow, his wrestling was dominant. But, like, what if, for example, I go up against the next person and my double gets stuffed, but they have a weakness to single legs, but my single leg's not that great. Right. The point I'm trying to make is if you can dominate someone in the wrestling department and you can do it with a variety of different takedowns, it means that like like without question, your wrestling was way better. Add in the 12 minutes, 12 minutes of control time. Plus, there was a sub attempt that she got credited for Blanchfield in the second round. I don't know if how many passes that they um, credit with her or or to what extent that they match that or look for that but dude this was big bank take little bank maverick is still a talented fighter i wouldn't lose sight of that at all but at 22 years of age obviously we have to slow our role here a little bit there are some pieces of her game that need legitimate work and even the parts that are great could always be better and all of it could become a more cohesive whole but blanchfield dude that was she ran the table on miranda maverick at least in this one department of the game and made it look you know Effortless is not the right word, but that uh, hopeless is the one I would use for Maverick. By the, by the middle of the third round, you're like, okay, yeah, this is completely hopeless. She can't extract herself. This other person's ability is just so far beyond. You're going to get what you're going to get. So I don't know exactly where she goes. Maverick is now an 0-2 after starting the UFC auspiciously, so she's got some work to do for sure. Um, but Blanchfield, I, I was sleeping on her before. I can I can readily admit I I did not think – a whole lot one way or the other, but she caught my attention certainly with this win. One of the most impressive. This whole card, by the way, I mean, I could just go up and down this thing. It's not very difficult. There's a lot of fights that were great. Uh, Jillian Robertson getting a nice rear naked choke win. Tony Kelly uh, beating Randy Costa the way he did. Costa just looked out of it for a while. Bruno Silva's great win over uh, Jordan Wright. How about Tai Tuivasa blowing the doors off Augusto Sakai? There's a lot you could point to. I'm going to give honorable mention to two more fighters. The first one, I guess, I will give to Ryan Hall, defeating Derek Minner, 30-27, on two of the judges' scorecards, 29-27. I, I tweeted about this being like I didn't know how the judges would look at it because there wasn't necessarily an overwhelming amount of ground and pound from Ryan Hall in certain positions, but clearly enough to get the job done. 
the thing that was so impressive was he changed up some coaching things, which, you know, I guess I'll leave to him because certainly he's going to know his career better than we will. Uh, seemed to work, by the way, to, to obviously this is a very small sample size, but it looked pretty good. But he didn't look like in the Taporia fight, he, I, I just didn't understand. I'd have to speak to him, but I didn't quite understand what some of the roles were trying to achieve. And obviously they didn't do what they were supposed to do in the end because he got um, finished off with strikes. But in the Minner fight, you saw a little bit more conventionality, I thought, of some of his game. Like, I mean that in a good way. He's still going to have the, you know, reverse De La Hiva back take kind of uh, uh, things that most people in MMA don't. Um, but in this particular case, you know, he 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 was conventional in, in like the right adjustment. And then the other thing I really stood out to me was like in that third round, dude, like Minner didn't do anything. And Ryan Hall held Mount for three or almost the entirety of to pull up the numbers here about how long he had a what they're awarding um for control time according to fight metric he had yeah five minutes and 37 seconds of control time but in that third round he had three minutes and 43 seconds so he had a bunch in that round um what i would say is you know it's kind of amazing to me like there's a lot of people who get to mount even blanchfield against maverick they would get to mount and you would see that like they'd throw a lot of heavy punches in there, either because they feel like they can get the opponent out of there or because they know they're not going to hold that position for very long, so bomb on them while you can. Ryan Hall had the exact opposite calculation. His control of mount was so good that he didn't have to have this like do-or-die ground-and-pound to get the results he wanted. He was able to control the guy, and he had, like I would say, moderate to good ground-and-pound, but nothing like super savage. He didn't need it. He was landing punches. He was scoring damage. And he was controlling a dominant position from which he could do those things almost effortlessly. Like, there was no way Minner was getting out of that. Ryan Hall is surprisingly strong. Like, Oliveira, those skinny, wiry guys have a little bit of squeeze on them. Uh, I've rolled with Ryan a number of times. I can tell you about it. His squeeze is, is actually very, very good. And um, anyway, you get the idea there. You don't see a lot of guys who either look to mount or can hold mount. And then on top of it, um, can keep it for long periods of time while doing ground and pound. Like they can make different choices about their offense because their control position is so good. Uh, and then last but not least, there was a hell of a fight between Dan Ige and Josh Emmett. This was the main event of the prelims. Uh, a, a really, really, really great fight. A strong one. There was a 30-27 scorecard, though, for Josh Emmett that I didn't understand. I leaned ever so slightly towards Ige. I had him losing the first, winning the second, uh, but then there was definitely a better effort from um, Emmett in the third, and I could I, him winning is not in any way scandalous. It was it was a that third round was tough to score, so I, it was fine if Josh Emmett won. But like the idea that he won the first after getting you know, um, or rather he excuse me that he won the second. There was a couple times where he got buzzed with big punches, like hurt with him. It's like I don't, I don't quite get that. But it's a nice win for um, Josh Emmett being back after what eighteen months, something like that, almost two years. And it's a tough loss for Danny Gay, but dude, Danny Gay's been fighting nothing but hammers, um, and he still is getting better. And that was a winnable one. So, you know, it's I, I feel bad for Danny Gay, but it's a nice win for Josh Emmett, and that's the way the fight game goes. So. There you have it. Um, great wins. What a great card, man. And I could go on and on about a lot of these fights for a little while. The only one that didn't really interest me was the Jeff neal Nibio fight. Um, but even then, there's something to take away from it, right? So what did you guys like? What was your fight of the card outside of the main and the co-main? Let me know in the comments. 
And who was like your standout fighter of the card? I would love to know that as well. Obviously, Juliana Pena is going to win a lot of that. Oliveira too. But I mean, you know, main and non-main event edition. Like who really impressed you up and down that fight card? Let me know in the comments. So um, there you have it. All right. Thumbs up on the video. Hit subscribe. If you're watching on YouTube, give us a follow anywhere. Or I should say, give us a nice uh, review. If you're listening to this on the audio portion of the podcast, episode 10, ladies and gentlemen, it is in the books. I'll be back for episode 11 next week. And until then, enjoy the fights. Teachers, administrators, and other school staff play an important role. Education can be a shining light, and it's really the equalizer for everybody. You are making a difference in people's lives, including your students. You can have a really bad day at school and still realize that what you're doing is making a bigger difference. We are the best profession in the world next to doctors, but even a doctor had a teacher. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now.